This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be another adapted OrthoBullets core webinar from the OrthoBullets core curriculum, and this one will cover pediatric osteomyelitis from the pediatric section. The topic will be reviewed by Dr. Lindsay Andras, who is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and assistant professor of clinical surgery at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. All right. Osteomyelitis is relatively common. About 1 in 5,000 children under the age of 13 will present with this at some point. The mean age is around 6 years, and typically this occurs via hematogenous spread. So we all have some bacteria that floats through our bodies. This is not uncommon in healthy children. So this is one difference between the infections that you see in adults and the infections that you see in pediatrics is that typically these are not immunocompromised individuals. So one thing to keep in mind is that the mechanism for this is typically some local trauma creates a small hematoma, and that sets up an opportunity for the bacteremia that we all have flowing through us to set up shop and develop a more significant infection. So if you remember nothing else from this webinar, if you think about the fact that a history of trauma doesn't mean they don't also have an infection, in fact, it makes it more likely you will probably save someone's life by being cognizant of that fact. Unfortunately, most of us in peds have taken care of somebody who had a mild fracture that developed a significant severe infection around that that was complaining of atypical pain. And so just keep in mind, if you see somebody with a buccal fracture and they're immobilized, they should be pretty comfortable following that. And if they're not, keep your radar up for the possibility of infection, and it'll be a clinical opportunity to have a big win. Okay, so some questions. In children, a diagnosis of osteomyelitis with concomitant DVT has a high association with which causative organism? So that's going to be MRSA. So anytime you're taking care of somebody with MRSA, uh, keep in mind the possibility of a DVT. So overall, Staph aureus is going to be the most common organism in all children, and there are community-acquired MRSA, and these strains oftentimes have this PVL. If they're PVL positive, that tends to be associated with more complex infections. And again, kind of can't stress this enough because it's clinically important as well as being highly tested. MRSA is associated with increased risk of DVT. Next question. So a six-year-old boy develops tenderness at the right heel and avoids putting weight on the right extremity after stepping on a nail. Calcaneo osteomyelitis caused by a puncture wound has an increased rate of which of the following organisms? So we have uh, the option choices, group A, streptococcus, coliforms infection, haemophilus, pseudomonas, or group B, strep. So as I'm sure you all knew, this is a pseudomonas infection. So whenever it's a direct puncture wound to the foot, think about it being pseudomonas as a highly likely suspect. So some subgroups that have different types of pathophysiology that's more common. The group B strep is seen more often in neonates. Kingella is seen commonly in young age groups. Pseudomonas with direct puncture wounds. And then haemophilus. We don't see as much since the advent of the vaccine, but can still occur, particularly in those that don't vaccinate. 
Another possibility, particularly if you're in a region like we are where you get a lot of international travel, that TB can be uh, something you want to consider. And if you're thinking about that as a possibility, then you want to make sure that the uh, stains are done for the acid fast bacilli. And then in the sickle cell population, salmonella infections are common. So acute osteomyelitis, as I uh, mentioned earlier, usually these cases are hematogenous in origin. And so you get some initial bacteremia, and then because there's this sluggish blood flow through the metaphyseal region around the physis, there's this sharp turn that many of those blood vessels are making that allows the bacteria to have an opportunity. So that's one of the things that predisposes children to getting severe infections that they won't have later on in life. So subsequent to this, a subperiosteal abscess can develop when the purulence uh, through the metaphyseal region breaks through the cortex, and these kids can get particularly sick. Another possibility is a septic arthritis can occur because in four joints, there's intraarticular metaphyseal cortex. So these four joints, and it's important to know, again, for tests and for clinical relevance, are the hip, the shoulder, the elbow, and the ankle. Another subgroup you want to be particularly careful with is the infants less than one year of age, because these children can oftentimes have infection that spreads across their growth plate and causes both osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. Just think of kids that are super young as basically being petri dishes. So when you find one area that's infected, you want to check their whole body for anything else that's uh, suspicious, because frequently you'll find another location of infection. Chronic osteo is a little bit different. You get these chronic abscesses uh, where they're surrounded by sclerotic bone and then fibrous tissue, and that leads to what we know as the Brody's abscesses. So a sequestrum is defined as which of the following? Number one, reactive bone in acute osteomyelitis. Number two, reactive bone in chronic osteomyelitis. Number three, necrotic bone providing a nidus for infection in chronic osteomyelitis, or healthy bone adjacent to chronic osteomyelitis, or healthy bone adjacent to acute osteomyelitis. So that's going to be number three, necrotic bone providing a nidus for infection. The sequestrum, this is the area of necrotic bone uh, that's become walled off from its blood supply. And around this area, you have a layer of new bone growth, which is known as the involucrum. So the involucrum is actually on the outside, um, and the sequestrum is within it, that necrotic area of bone. The mortality, fortunately, with antibiotic treatment has decreased from 50% to less than 1%, but it certainly can happen. And again, usually in the cases where it happens, it's because someone wasn't thinking about the diagnosis um, and it got too far along before intervention. So the presentation is typically going to be one of pain in the extremity. There's usually uh, some history of remote minor trauma. Another thing to consider is whether or not they've been immunized. And keep in mind that if they've had antibiotic use, it may make the uh, symptoms more subtle. Typically, they're going to limp or refuse to bear weight. And generally, they're not very ill-appearing at the uh, start, although they can certainly become that way. And then fevers are oftentimes present, but not always. On exam, you're going to have restricted range of motion due to pain. So this was a study looking at patient factors by Jew, and they identified four patient factors for identifying between MRSA and SSA. 
and those were a temperature greater than 38, a white blood cell count more than 12,000, a hematocrit less than 34, and a CRP greater than 13. If you have all four of those, you have a 92% chance of having an MRSA infection. If you have three out of four, you have a 42%. So if you fall in either of those groups, you should probably include MRSA coverage in your antibiotic selection. So next question, a five-year-old boy presents with temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit and painful weight bearing on the left lower extremity for one day. His hip motion is painless, but his knee motion is painful. He has a white blood cell count of 21,000, CRP of 72, an aspirate of the knees performed that's unremarkable. So we're going to see some images that after being treated for this condition, what study will be needed in late-term follow-up if clinically indicated. So we have standing full-length films. MRI of the hip, MRI of the femur, PET scan, and parathyroid hormones. And the images here show some osteo of the distal femur and associated infection in the soft tissue. And so in this case, you're going to want to monitor for growth arrest. So you want to get a standing full-length film of his bilateral lower extremities to make sure that you don't miss limb length inequality. So uh, standard imaging to start with is going to be, of course, start with a plain radiograph. Sometimes this is going to answer the question, as uh, you can see here, this example of Brody's abscess. But also note that early films may be normal, and oftentimes the effects that you see on x-ray are going to lag behind what's actually occurring. So when you get late films at one to two weeks after the initial diagnosis, those oftentimes show more change in the bone. And oftentimes the x-ray, when you first treat it, looks great, and the x-ray two weeks later looks terrible. So just keep that in mind. A CT can be used in some chronic cases to assess things like an involucrum or sequestrum. But typically, if you're trying to catch things early, an MRI is going to be your most sensitive test. And this is increased if you use gadolinium. Uh, bone scans, we don't use too many bone scans for a diagnosis of osteo, but there are a few cases where it can be really clinically helpful, and that would be in particular if you have an infant or toddler with a non-focal exam and you're really having a hard time pinning things down, a bone scan is a good way to narrow in on one particular area because you can't have them in the MRI scanner and just do their entire body. So in terms of labs, your CRP is going to be your most valuable thing to follow here. So white blood cell count is not even always elevated when you're taking care of patients with osteomyelitis, though it certainly can be. Uh, but your CRP is, with very rare exception, going to be elevated. It becomes elevated very quickly, and it's also the most sensitive to monitor your therapeutic response. So it's the best indicator of your early treatment being effective. It's most sensitive to detect an infection in the first place. ESR is usually elevated and can rise rapidly, but the problem is it goes down quite slowly, so it's hard to gauge whether or not things are responding appropriate to your either surgical or antibiotic treatment or both. And then procalcitonin is something that's becoming a little bit of a newer test, but as you can see, the sensitivity on this isn't that great, so it's about 60%. Bone aspirations, it can help if you're in search of a definitive diagnosis. Blood cultures are going to be positive in less than 50%, but it's a good thing to check before they get antibiotics because it may give you an organism that you can target narrowly without uh, having to do a further biopsy. Again, aspiration can assist in diagnosis and management. We don't always a biopsy. Oftentimes, they'll be treated empirically. But if the diagnosis isn't clear or you're not responding appropriately to the antibiotic, uh, the frontline agents, then it's certainly a good thing to consider. Keep in mind that in many cases, you also want to 
rule out malignancy if there's any suspicion for that. So just in general, it's good if you're taking an intraoperative biopsy to culture all tumors and send all infections for PATH. And then the clinical picture is really clear. That may not be indicated, but it's something to consider when it's fuzzy. So antibiotic therapy alone is typically the front line if it's early disease with no associated abscess. But if it's not improving clinically, then there's a low threshold for surgical intervention as well. Okay, next question. An eight-year-old girl presents to the ER with a four-day history of a limp. Lab results show white blood cell count of 13,000. or CRP is elevated at 14. During the workup in the ER, the patient becomes hypotensive. What is the mechanism of action of the empiric antibiotic appropriate for this patient? So we have a concerning situation here that she's becoming uh, hypotensive and ill in front of us. So we want to make sure that we have good coverage for MRSA, which is typically the culprit when uh, kids get really sick like that. And so you want the mechanism of action of vancomycin, which is going to be number two binding to the D-ala-D-ala residues. So again, typically we begin with empiric therapy. If there's a high suspicion for MRSA, then we would cover for vancomycin. Otherwise, it'd be either nafcillin or oxacillin. And if there's anything suspicious on the gram stain for a gram-negative bacilli, then we'd add a third-generation cephalosporin. Again, here, timing is a little bit debatable. So we typically treat with IV antibiotics for four to six weeks, but that's a very controversial duration. And if you can identify the specific organism, then you can oftentimes narrow the antibiotic coverage. Okay, nine-year-old boy is treated for acute hematogenous osteomyelitis of the distal tibia. He fails to show any clinical improvement with IV therapy. Advanced imaging is obtained that shows a 1.5 by 1.5 abscess. A following surgery, serial evaluations of which of the following studies is most expeditious method to determine the early success of treatment. We have options of white blood cell count, MRI, ESR, CRP, and radiographs. Again, your CRP is typically your most sensitive marker here in terms of plotting the response as well as detecting the infection initially. So our operative treatment is going to be surgical, drainage, debridement, and antibiotic therapy. And oftentimes, the institutions will develop an algorithm treatment for this. We say a contraindication to a surgical drainage is hemodynamic instability, but keep in mind if what's really making them hemodynamically unstable is the fact they're getting septic, then what you don't want to do is wait on going to the OR. In fact, you want to run there. So just keep that in mind. Sometimes they're hemodynamically unstable for other reasons, but if it seems like it's related to the sepsis, which most commonly it's going to be in the setting, then you want to probably pick up the pace so that you can start getting the infection under control. This article in JBJS just advocated for evidence-based treatment guidelines with a multidisciplinary team approach. You want to evacuate all purulence, remove the sequestrum in chronic cases, and then close the wound either over drains or oftentimes we'll use a wound vac to try and clean everything out really nicely and go back in a staged manner for closure. And then you follow with IV antibiotics, and once their ESR and CRP are normalized, we can usually switch to PO antibiotics. Again, think about if you're getting culture specimens, sending those to pathology as well. And then just to emphasize, if it seems like a really bad infection, the best option may be to apply a wound vacker packet rather than closing it right away. DVT is an infrequent complication in children, but the risk factors are an age over eight, MRSA, needing surgical treatment, and CRP greater than six. Meningitis can also occur when you have a diffuse infection. Growth disturbances and limb-like discrepancies from gross plate involvement are something you have to be cognizant of and follow postoperatively.
That's all for this review on pediatric osteomyelitis. If you would like access to the full video version of these core webinars, sign up for the OrthoBullets core curriculum today. There will be a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Thanks so much for listening. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. See you all tomorrow.